Hello, Andres. Very nice to meet Hello, you Marcus. again. Nice to see you again. Yeah, I was I was uh, a, a guest on on your uh, Talking Brains show on YouTube, which is not yet a yeah. podcast. I we, we really need to do that. <laughs> it will become a podcast podcast this year. <laughs> and so you're a neuroscientist, and um, what do you do? Well, that's a good question. Um, I basically, let's try, let's say, try to understand how experience happens. That's as simple as that. How, how is it possible that when we open our eyes in the morning and when we close our eyes in the night, there is stuff going on that we see, that we hear, that we touch. And those things that happen around us actually have a quality. Mm -hmm. Let's say it, it, they have sentience. We, we can we can describe them in a way that is extremely close to us, close to us, and at the same time, is the most real thing ever. Experience is the only thing that we can call real mm -hmm. in this world of you know smokes and mirrors that we live in. So I try to do that in a very you could say um, naive way, which is trying to look at what's going on inside here, inside the skull. So mm -hmm. I use tools from neuroscience to, to understand how consciousness uh, in particular works. Um, yeah, so that's what I do. Wow. So, so you said like the, the only thing that's real is our experiences, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a good one. I think so. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, um, can you doubt about your own experience? Not about the things that you see, not about the content of your experience, but about the fact that you are aware. Mm -hmm. The fact that when you are actually making a description, even though that description might end up being true or false, the faculty by which you are making that description is through your awareness. So can you doubt about your own awareness? I wouldn't say so. So the starting point of this neuroscience of consciousness, if you want, it's the claim that uh, experience is real. Mm -hmm. And later on, you try to understand what are the causes of that experience or, or not the causes, if you want, but what is the relationship of that um, lived experience and some activity in your body, in this case, or in, in the case, in my case, uh, some activity in your in your own brain. Mm -hmm. But doubting about that starting point, I would say it's um, it's a mistake. And I, I'm, I'm aware of the fact that there are, there are going to be many, many philosophers or even colleagues that might say, no, 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 wait, wait a second, what are you saying? Uh, we, we can also doubt about the fact that you're aware. But from a, from a, from a purely uh, consciousness research point of view, I would say that if you doubt that, then you doubt the object of your own investigation, which I think is, uh, it would be a terrible mistake to make. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it, it kind of like, um, you, I, I would believe that you have to assume um, that consciousness is uh, not something where you have a judgmental definition of it, but where, where it is, um, I don't, I don't know how to describe it, but if you're thinking about say a cow, um, standing in a field, chewing grass, 
I'm thinking of yeah. <laughs> and there is because there uh, because you were already using the word like outside of us and stuff like that so so really like there's there's some sort of exchange of uh, information via our senses going inside and some what going outside and so the cow in the field and its level of consciousness um, it, or experiencing right is um, ultimately no different from Andres uh, in his apartment right yes exactly <laughs> yes exactly so that's a very good distinction because we we try to make the the distinction between what we call the contents of the mind or the contents of consciousness which is basically objects in your mind mm -hmm. um, cows grass uh, discussions with Marcus Reuter etc and the faculty by which you become aware of those objects mm -hmm. I'm using the word faculty in a very loose manner but the basically the spotlight the light that illuminates those objects in your mind and that light that illuminates those those objects in your mind is not a thing in itself is the condition of possibility by which you become aware of those things so that i think the metaphor of the light is really good because light is the condition of possibility by which you are capable of experiencing anything outside so without light there wouldn't be objects in the world because light couldn't be able to reflect out of those objects and you you wouldn't be aware of them so but at the same time light in this metaphor is not a thing like awareness is not a thing mm -hmm. it's a constant process by which all other things exist um so on that note that's why i think consciousness is such a hard subject to study mm -hmm. Because it's never the object, mm -hmm. and it's not, it, and it's, it's not even it's not even the light. And if you exactly, it, but, but it's, it's the direction of the light. Exactly, it's not even the light. The light is a metaphor because again, you can say, yeah, light, of course, in some way, is still an object because you can describe it and measure mm -hmm. it. Um, it's a wave and it's a particle at the same time, so it's it's a it's a it's a function if you want. Mm -hmm. But uh, awareness is a very very special thing because it's always present and at the same time it's never fixed it's always changing so how on earth can you make a science out of something that is ever present mm -hmm. and it's always changing yeah. at the same time it's really hard mm -hmm. if you think about how science works like from if you think if you think how calculus works so for instance you need to maintain one of the parameters or of the variables fixed in the equation and move the other mm -hmm. in such a way to study velocity or acceleration or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then if you want to study the other variable, let's say y, you need to fix x and see how y moves now. But you always need to f maintain one fixed in order to study how the other one changes. But what happens with consciousness? It's always changing mm -hmm. from a first person point of view. It's always changing. So how you can make science of something that is so, you know, um, apparently uh, uh, transient yeah. and, uh, and, and, and so close to you, right? Mm -hmm. You cannot make a, a separation between you and your awareness. You can always make separations between you and the objects of your awareness. Let's say your thoughts 
objects outside, your own, your dreams. But what about the awareness itself? So have you, have you found any um, answers to this question? How to, how um, partial, to study? Partial. Exactly. So how do we do that? So I would say that there are, there are a few approaches for this. One of them that is very popular is literally to forget about what I just said and just try it, first of all, to understand what happens with the consciousnesses of other people, right? So I don't care anymore about my own awareness, but I do care about whether or not someone is conscious or not, or if someone is awake or not, or if someone is asleep or not. So we can study what people called states of consciousness, which are differences between different levels of awareness, but in others, not in, not on myself, in others. And the most promising uh, way of, st of studying those uh, differences in states of consciousness is by investigating, for instance, what happens in the brain of someone when he or she is asleep or when they are awake or when they are under hypnosis or when when they are under the effects of some drug or when they are incapable of communicating anything, when they're in, in a pathological state of consciousness, as we call them, like comatose or vegetative, etc. And then we can record what's happening in their brains and we can compare the different states. Um, and we can do that with our fancy uh, tools and fancy toys that we play with. But at the end of the day, the question is, what are the differences between these different states in such a way that we, we could find some common principle that explains why some people become aware when they open their eyes in the morning and why they're not aware even though they can follow simple instructions in a hospital when they are in a, let's say, minimally conscious state. Mm -hmm. So that's the state's approach. Okay. Um, and that has been very promising, I would say, in the last 30 years. So we have learned uh, a lot about um, certain networks in the brain that are important for becoming aware to be alert, to be awake. Um, we have learned a, a lot about sleep. We have learned a lot about um, patients, like vegetative patients, comatose patients. In particular, I've been involved in some projects concerning um, pathologies of consciousness, like trying to understand what do you need to see in the brain in such a, in 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 in, uh, in order to understand whether or not a patient is going to wake up after a after being in a vegetative state for a year or two. So what do you need to actually look for in the, in the brain activity? Mm -hmm. um, and of course, now I would say in the last 10 years, it's been like a, like a boom in uh, psychedelics uh, research. So people want to understand what happens when you're, when you're high mm -hmm. <laughs> under, uh, under certain uh, hallucinogenics, um, which is, yeah, that's a bit tricky because then you need to conceptualize what does it mean to have an experience under this kind of drugs and then what is the best way of characterizing the brain activity to know what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say that's that's one of the most uh, interesting approaches so far. And, and the other one is just uh, trying to uh, go into the, into the, I would say, into the more complicated question, which is 
how can I explain my own experience? So mm-hmm. not my own Andres experience, but the first person experience, the qualitative experience, not trying to understand whether someone else is aware or not, but trying to understand how my awareness works from a first person point of view. And these are the people that are actually interested in studying how different contents of the mind uh, change as a function of your awareness. That's what I do, basically, mm-hmm. mainly. Um, and then you have the problem of, okay, how are you going to do that? So how do you study that? So one way is playing with um, playing with the perception, let's say, uh, trying to understand, let's say, what's the difference between imagining a face versus seeing a face. Yeah. There's a clear qualitative dif- difference between the two. Mm-hmm. And then you can you can look up in the brain what are the correlates, as we call them, mm-hmm. or the activity in the brain that is related to one that is absent in the other or mm-hmm. the commonalities between the two, etc. There is another promising approach, which is studying um, perception in a very, I would say, clever way, which is showing you um, images or sounds that can be interpreted in different ways. Mm-hmm. One classic example is, um, I'm not sure if you have seen this face uh, um, vase illusion, this classic yeah, for uh, sure. yeah. visual illusions. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about these illusions is that, I think it's a critical thing, which is the image in itself is not changing. So objectively speaking, the amount of pixels on the screen are exactly the same. They're never changing. However, your experience is actually changing because you're actually interpreting the image in one way or in another way, even though the physical thing is never changing. And that speaks immediately about your awareness because what is actually changing is the way how you are actually experiencing the, the image in one way or another. So... What are the differences or what are the mechanisms in the brain that allows your awareness to switch between one image or the other or to interpret one stream of sound or one specific photo in one way or another? And that speaks directly to the question of awareness. Exactly, because that's um, the metaphor of the the light that you're shining onto, say, the vase side or the face side of the image, right? And and is there just 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 very briefly like is there something sure. like a like an answer to that question already like do you kind of like have some sort of idea um, what the difference is or where where yes. the switch is let's say exactly so every I I mean there are I would say um, if I would have to um, yes I would say there are two 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 um, there is a, some sort of consensus. So one is the two brain areas that are important for the contents of the mind. So for, for having something there that can be switched into one object or another is the frontal part of your brain and what an area that is in the back called the parietal cortex. So we call that the frontal parietal network, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And... It's not a matter of switching on or switching off uh, these brain areas. It's more about how these two brain areas talk to each other. If they talk to each other loudly and there is a high communication between them, 
then it's highly likely that you're going to have a switch mm -hmm. or it's highly likely that the switching is going to happen. Mm -hmm. If the communication between the two areas is low, then it's highly likely that you're going to be fixed in one or the two states, but not switching. Okay. So it's a matter of talking, cross-talking between the two areas. It's the negotiation that... It's the negotiation yeah. between the two. Yeah. Um, we, we do know as a general principle that brains like to work in concert. So in order to perceive or in order to have a qualitative experience that is rich, different brain areas need to be talking to each other. The way how they talk to each other, it's a matter of debate. So one, one classic example is people have claimed and showed uh, experimentally that two brain areas can talk to each other if they are synchronized. So basically if the brain activity is actually uh, jumping with the same rhythm, but it has been also shown that there are other ways of communication that has nothing to do with synchrony, that apparently you see a lot of noise between two areas, but if you look deeper and deeper using um, tools from information theory, you would say you would actually see that they are talking to each other, but in a non-trivial way, not, less, not like just jumping together, but more like dancing together, <laughs> right? So when we dance, we are not doing the same thing at the same time, but we are indeed coordinated. So dancing <coughs> is a way of communication that is not necessarily doing the same thing at the same time. Mm -hmm. So uh, the mechanism by which brain areas talk to each other, um, it's still uh, a matter of debate, uh, but we kind of all agree that you need integration in the brain, what we call it. So it's mainly uh, big parts of the brain talking to each other. So when you're talking about uh, areas of the brain, are you talking about physically distinct parts or um, are these all, are these kind of like localized in one big network of connections? That's a very good question. Um, I think it's both. Um, so when I speak about an area, it can be, it can be something as big as an entire uh, lobe, like say the parietal lobe. But it also can be that you know we know that these areas are also subdivided into smaller areas, and each of these individual regions have a certain function. Um, in the case of consciousness, it's really hard to tell what's the function because we have we're, we're our science is like in its teenage years. But we do know that there are a lot of specialization in the brain. So there are areas that are specialized for, let's say, processing faces. There are areas that are specialized for, for processing objects. And we know that. There are tiny, tiny subparts of this whole lobe. Mm -hmm. But still, uh, it's a network, it's a vast network of millions of neurons that is devoted to proce for processing face information and not other type of information. Mm -hmm under certain, of course, experimental conditions. Mm -hmm. Now, the question becomes more complicated if you scale up the problem, because now the problem is not whether I'm seeing a face or a house in a very honest screen, but whether or not I'm becoming aware of a face, in, let's say, in an experiment where I'm 
flashing the face really, really fast. Mm -hmm. So if I flash the face for, let's say, more than 20 milliseconds, I would be able to report that I see the face. But if I flash it for less than 15 milliseconds, then I won't be able to do that. So then the question is, I presented the face for a very brief amount of time. So the, the face was present on a screen, but I'm incapable of reporting it. So what happened there? So we know that there, when, when you are incapable of reporting that you see this face when I flash it really fast, we know that the information doesn't reach the frontal lobe. It kind of reached the parietal, the back of the head, but it doesn't crawl up. And in order to become aware of the face, you need more time exposing the face in order for that to crawl up. Now, a friend of mine is doing very nice experiments that he's showing that in order to see a face, you don't need uh, 15, you need four milliseconds, four. Mm -hmm. um, and then you, you can actually report it, or at least the brain can actually process it. Mm -hmm. So these things happen really, really fast. They improve, they improve with training and so on and so forth. So what I was trying to say is that one thing is to ask the question, is there, is, are there specialized areas of the brain that are responsible for certain functions? The answer is absolutely yes. Mm -hmm. But when you're trying to investigate how these different areas talk to each other, to be accountable for your faculty of awareness, then the problem starts uh, becoming more and more complex. Mm -hmm. Because now it's about the, the cross-talking between brain areas in very, very specific circumstances where you manipulate uh, the presence or absence of an object on the screen or the, the um, interpretation of it, uh, etc. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's clear enough. Doesn't matter. <laughs> we're we're in a conversation. Good. Like uh, you know, I'm I'm surprised that you uh, brought up these visual priming uh, experiments. Uh, there now, which I have been aware of, like for over thirty years, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and and it's always been interesting. And now that you not now that you um, say it, I see uh, the you know the aspect of like where do you actually start defining consciousness as like conscious experience because you were talking about experience mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. if if the the body subconsciously experiences which it does as you said there you have like for certain priming experience you can see okay like below whatever like you said four milliseconds for faces or whatever like but what 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 is what is taking place below that is that will that be the cutoff point where we talk about conscious experience versus subconscious experiencing but the the subconscious experiencing still is experiencing somehow if you know if you know what i mean like so 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 even there it is it is kind of like difficult to to um to tell the difference between or you know like and and so but the cool thing is like if you if you find out experimentally where this this cutoff is then you can look for patterns that are different above that millisecond range versus below that millisecond range. Exactly. And then, you know, right. Yeah. And, and exactly. And yes. And when you, and, and so, okay. So, and when you get to that level of, um, of um, uh, neural activity, you say there is no such thing as localization anymore. There is uh, less, less localization, less. Mm -hmm. I would say. Exactly. Mm -hmm. 
of course, there are going to be people that are going to say, well, but you're speaking about one dominant theory that says that you need broad broadcasting in the brain. Mm -hmm. But of course, there are other theories that claim that uh, consciousness can happen much more locally, like in the back of the head, and they don't need the frontal cortex. There is still debate, mm -hmm. but I want to be extremely clear about this. The overwhelming evidence that we have around tells us that you need long-distance communication in the brain for awareness. Mm -hmm. There are other experiments and other theories that claim that you only need the back of your head, but I wouldn't say those theories have enough support, yeah. empirical support. Well, for me, it's it's kind of like a, a no-brainer <laughs> no <-brainer>. that, <laughs> uh, uh, that if one thing changes in the system, it, it changes the whole system. So even if something just like yeah. a switch flicks here, like it, you don't even need to call it, you don't even need to call it communication because it, it doesn't even need to travel in order to make a difference. That's at least that's yeah. how I see it. Yes, that's a very good point because um, for, for many, many, many years, uh, we had this very, um, I would say, Yeah, it's, it's kind of an area-centric view of the brain mm -hmm. that we, we try to map very, very, very precisely which areas are related to which function. And then we end up with a very rich map, which is the Broadman, the famous Broadman mm -hmm. area map, mm -hmm. which is absolutely true. Mm -hmm. uh, but the thing is, now we do know that in order to, to perform any kind of volitional action, or to experience anything in the world around us, it's not just a matter of activating or deactivating certain areas. Of course, that's the case. Otherwise, if you wouldn't have activated your face region area when you're seeing a face, you wouldn't be able to see a face. But seeing a face is not just activating a button in the brain. There are so many other things going on. So you need, first of all, information from the external world reaching your eyes or your retina, then your the back of your head, which is the visual cortex, then this face processing area. But then what are you going to do with that information? Are you going to make a decision about it? Are you going to press a button if you're in a specific exper experiment? Am I going to say hi to Marcus if I recognize him on the street? Am I going to run away from Marcus if I, uh, if I don't want to talk to him? What am I going to do? So... It is, it is true that perception happens at certain stage, but as you mentioned, it's not just that. There is a whole context in which we're embedded in that determines or basically modulates perception itself. So the new model of the mind is that every sensory process is also influenced by things that happened in the front of if plan If planning, predicting anticipating is part of your normal experience, then all these perceptions that are very, very like the starting point of the whole process are, are also modulated by these uh, more contextual uh, processes. So it's a continuous feed forward and feedback communication between brain areas. It's, it's a complex network. Mm -hmm. And you made a very nice distinction, which is the fact that sometimes you don't need to, you, you don't need a, to be able to talk to B in the brain, but the mere fact that you have a super rich network going on, if you change the little conditions of one part, you're going to modify the conditions of another part just for the for the sake of the structure, yeah. how the brain is wired. Mm -hmm. 
So we call that also communication in order to understand what we're doing. (laughs) But it's true that you have physical connections between areas that can be modified by modifying the two ends or the 10,000 ends. Uh, But also you have functional connections that are defined as relationships, correlations between activity, not just structural connections, but functional relations. So you have these two worlds, the the structure and the function Mm -hmm. again, and we go back to Aristotle. So let's let's go back for now to the, um, like you said, you have that area which lights up when you see a face, right? How does that compare to, say, the other extreme where you're imagining a face? Will that be, is that the same area? Yeah, it is. Um, that's a cool question. Um, but then, then I, I for a, for a, for a, for someone who who likes to run experiments like me, <laughs> to me it's absolutely obvious that if you close your eyes. Mm-hmm. And you try to imagine, I, I'm trying to imagine the last image that I had of your face at the moment. Mm-hmm. To me, it's absolutely clear that I'm seeing a face. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's absolutely clear if, if, if there are some aspects of that face, that the area of the face area has to be in some way involved. But how do you study that? Because if I close my eyes and I start imagining the face, for us to analyze brain data, we need clear onsets. So we need to know exactly when did you start the imagination process and when did it end. Mainly, where where the hell did it start? So we can go there and look on a trial-by-trial basis on repetitive iterations of this process. What is going on in the brain in terms of the networks, etc. But what happens when you don't have an onset, a clear onset? Because I can start, I can close my eyes and I can do the, yeah, I'm imagining your face, but when did it start? So it's really hard to know when. So it's a very, um, it's a practical problem, but we deal with these practical problems all the time because we want to do experiments. While if I just flash you a face on a screen, it's very clear that I have the perfect onset and I can go and see in your brain what happens when I presented the screen on uh, the, the face on the screen. So we need... We have clever, more clever ways of dealing with that. We can do that. And hey, I did this, that. This, this uh, is uh, inspiring to me because like, I'm starting to think that it could be really cool if you would work with, uh, with hypnotherapists and how they inter- in, induce trans states in people, let's say, because that moment where the in, in, in induction happens that could be the trigger that could be your like okay this is the yeah. point and here we're exactly. seeing what changes in the mind of the recipient of the yes so this this uh, this is interesting because this wasn't planned at all and we we just published a paper on face perception using hypnosis oh. <laughs> i can <laughs> we did exactly that it t- it took us 10 years to do it. Mm-hmm. I started that project with a colleague uh, that he's now in Sweden with Renzo Lanfranco uh, in 2011, back at home, back in Chile. Mm-hmm. And then we, 
I was uh, finishing uh, uni by then and I was totally crazy because people say, why do you want to study this kind of weird thing? Why, why do you want to ruin your career from, from the very beginning? I said, because it's interesting, mm -hmm. right? It's really interesting to know how you can generate a, completely, a complete world inside you without any physical input, mm -hmm. just by the instruction of, a, of some weird guy that is trying to hypnotize mm -hmm. you. And it happens that Renzo, he's a he's a clinical psychologist. Now he's he's a neuroscientist mm -hmm. as well, but he's also an expert on a, on clinical hypnosis. Mm -hmm. So he said, "Yeah, let's do it." <laughs> so we started ages ago, and then it was a nightmare because you need to uh, fr from two hundred people that we were interviewing. He was passing the test to all of them. There is a hypnotizability test mm -hmm. that you can run on people in order to know mm -hmm. exactly how hypnotizable they are. And depending on your level, if you're just uh, like a normal dude, no, 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 I'm, I'm joking <laughs> here, but there are some, there is, if you rank five in the scale, it means that you can have very unusual experiences. And one of them is to hallucinate. You can hallucinate visually or auditorily. So from the 200 people that uh, Renzo interviewed and did the whole thing, we ended up with 14, 14 that could hallucinate. And from those 14, only seven could hallucinate faces. Mm -hmm. So it was a nightmare. The sample was a nightmare. <laughs> but then we had like a very, very special cohort of people that we treated like, uh, like gold. And then we made them to actually either see faces on a screen, to imagine those faces, or based on what you mentioned, these hypnotic suggestions, to hallucinate the faces. And we compare what happens in that, that area. With the EEG, with electroencephalography, there is a very clear mark in the time series that you can observe when people are seeing faces or imagining faces, mm -hmm. or in this case, hallucinating faces. Mm -hmm. And what happens is that there is a very similar effect between imagining the face and hallucinating the face. Mm -hmm. But the hallucination, the, the strength and the amplitude of the signal in that area for when you're hallucinating is much bigger than when you're just imagining. Mm -hmm. So we call the paper Beyond Imagination. <laughs> And so on, because it's not it's not like imagining. It's something more. It's like imagination on, on steroids mm -hmm. in terms of the brain signal. Mm -hmm. The other critical thing is not the brain marker, but I was absolutely flabbergasted by the fact that people, when when Renzo was uh, doing his magic, <laughs> and then they were clearly hallucinating a face on a screen. We asked them to rank how real the image was between one and 10, mm -hmm. right? So for the perceived faces, for the faces that were actually there, it was a 10. But for the hallucinated faces, there was nothing on a screen except for a gray oval. It was also a nine or a 10. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then th some people were asking you, why are you asking me this question? Of course, it's the image is on the screen. And to me, it was, it's just so... It's amazing to, to witness that. Everyone should witness that once in their lives <laughs> because it, it gives you goosebumps like mm -hmm. to know that in that specific moment, in the same room, 
there is someone living a completely different reality than you, but you are the only one who knows that he's <laughs> or she the one that is not here. It's such an amazing thing. Uh, and it took 10 years to publish because it was very difficult to get the sample, get the controls to analyze the data. My PhD happens in the middle, reviewers, you know, all the process. But now it's published in a very good journal. And I'm very proud of that one because it was a, it was a weird though. But to me, it was a definite moment in the sense that you say, okay, most of our life is just internal. Most of the things that we judge is just how you see things at the end of the day. I, I'm not saying that everyone is hypnotized, or, but no, no. But it tells you a lot of very strong things. I, I think it's what I find particularly fascinating about this is that I've always been um, a friend of the idea that imagination is not making a copy of what we experience through our senses, right? Like if I if I think about a particular face that doesn't have to mean that I have to visually recreate it in my mind. I have, there's more data available that can bring that back. Maybe it's just sort of like even just the digital information, like it's Andres, right? Like maybe, maybe the fact that my level of consciousness is only to maybe repeat the auditory information Andres, right? And it kind of like, but it's enough for me to believe that I imagine your face. Mm -hmm. If you know what I, what yeah. I mean. But yeah, then, exactly. and, and now, like, now that you talk about hallucination, which is, is basically the, the other side of, or is like the, as you say, on steroids, imagination on steroids, where you're actually capable or where your mind recreates the exact, exact image or the exact pattern of neural activity uh, I don't know if that's the case, but I'm just saying that, uh, you know, that that yeah. you get when you actually experience something coming in, you know, in yeah. from the outside. Yes. Um, and I think that's that's very relevant for for what you do mm -hmm. as a musician, because. Um, well, we, we did it in, in, in the interview for Talking Brains that uh, I was shocked <laughs> by the fact that you were creating what you do. Mm -hmm. On, in, in an ongoing manner. So there is there is a kind of a loop thing that's going on there that it's dictating what's next, but it's mainly driven by your, your inner sense, right? by your inner eye, your inner ear, whatever you want to call mm -hmm. it. And that relies on, on imagination. And it's beyond imagination in the sense that it also relies on everything else that you have experienced before. Because imagination is not just going into the stored in, into the storage in your brain that has that image exactly as you saw it once and just call it calling it back no it's not that every time that you imagine something you need to recreate that something from scratch mm -hmm. so memory for instance is not something fixed memory is always an active process you're always reigniting the networks in your brain that were responsible for that phase so as a matter of fact, memory is just a constant recreation of something. And memories, that's why memories change mm -hmm. because they're not stable over time because they rely on reactivating the same uh, network over and over again. By, but th those networks are not cables made out of uh, Cooper, uh, copper. They're 
made out of biological stuff mm. and biological stuff changes all the time in particularly neurons they change all the time so so even imagination is not a fixed process that you just go to a bucket of things that you have remembered and you just call them back it's, it's not it's not that mm-hmm. yeah that's that's why the analogy that um is often being used for the brain to be a computer is is obviously not it's terrible. It's, ter- it's terrible, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I mean it's um like the the interesting thing with with a with a computer memory, let's say, like you you're you're trying to compress the data for it to take less space, right? In a way. And in, in the yes. brain, I find like or in my experience with my brain, it's the opposite. Like ex- I expand the data for it to take mm-hmm. less space somehow. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, yeah. Yeah. It's a distributed system instead of just a, uh, a comp- uh, yeah. You're not using many uh, SIP algorithms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, so, so yeah. just one more, one more thought here. So um, you uh, were studying these, this hypnotic state, uh, in, you know, with a particular, um, um, projection of face, right? That that was kind of like the idea of the faces. Um, um, I, I'm sure because you were talking also about psychedelics, right? Like, so for example, you could have somebody in a coma, uh, in a hospital bed, you could have like yourself or me, like saying we're normal, normally, you know, awake somehow. Sure and you, sure and you are. could, you could, you could have somebody on, on, uh, whatever masculine or, LSD or whatever, and and study yeah. study what the what the difference is. Like you you call that like the research of the states, right? Of the yeah. Um, so what what can you tell us about the um, the research results in that field? I mean, has, has there been anything that you think is of, of great value to understanding consciousness? And can you explain what it is? Yeah, so um, I think the first thing I would like to say is that you need to be very careful in conceptualizing what's the value of of this Mm -hmm. kind of research, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, of course, you don't need to justify why are you interested in understanding how psychedelics work in the brain. You don't need, I mean, we're in a free world. And if there is some funding agency that likes the approach, then you go for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the main motivation here is the assumption that the normal uh, range of experiences that you might have during uh, a psychedelic experience, it's kind of enlarged. So basically the repertoire of things that you can become aware of are expanded, right? That's an assumption. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that that's the case. Mm-hmm. It's what people report, mm-hmm. right? So if if that's the case, well, you have something that you need to be explained. It needs to be explained, right? You have a certain experience that is not, not like your normal waking state, that it feels in a specific manner. It feels expanded. It feels richer. Uh, people have uh, all kinds of experiences associated to transcend, transcending experiences, all sorts of things that are not in your normal awareness or on your daily basis when you, well, you don't go to the office anymore, but when you work from home, <laughs> right? 
Uh, and those need, those things, those experiences are demanding an explanation. And then you go to the brain and you put people on drugs and then you see what happens. Mm -hmm. So what has been discovered in the last six, seven years, and this is research, research uh, from mainly uh, Michael Shatner, which is a good friend, uh, he, he has shown that when you try to measure the brain activity during those states and you try to compress it to see how rich the information in the brain is at that moment, it happens that when you're in a normal waking state, the amount of compression that you can make is, let's say, this. But when you're in a, in a trip, the amount of compression that you can make is this. So you cannot really compress much the brain activity. What does that mean? Compression, in this sense, is just an approach uh, for quantifying how crazy your brain activity is at that specific yeah, how, moment, how, how richer the data it is, is, how complex the data is. In the same way how you can compress a very repetitive image or a very repetitive audio file is going to be really, really yeah. easy to be compressed. But if it's not rich enough, but if, if it's rich and complex enough, it's not going to be very compressible. Mm -hmm. In the same way, they do that with the brain, with the brain activity. Mm -hmm. And the complexity of your brain um, increases when you are having those trips, those when you're under certain uh, hallucinogenics. Um, what does that mean? Well, we don't know. <laughs> that's that's the date. That's the result that I can mention. Um, mm -hmm. It is true that it correlates very nicely with the things that people describe during those trips. So people describe an expanded perception, certain types of experiences that you you are not aware of in your daily life. So the implication there, or the inference there, is that those differences in uh, the, the 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 richness in the experience, it's directly related to this increased in complexity or decreased in compressibility of your brain activity. Now, these studies are made uh, using this approach of the state, right? So I, I have someone with the drug and without the drug, and I just compare how compressible the data is, and I just find that the data is more complex when you're hallucinating. Now, I would love to know now whether or not you can actually relate certain uh, contents of that experience to other more, I would say, more detailed mechanisms in the brain. We don't know that yet. Mm -hmm. We have no idea yet. Mm -hmm. uh, we also don't know, and this is something that I make as a note, uh, we also do not know whether these experiences are actually pointing to something else. That's the spiritual aspect of the discussion, right? Whether or not these experiences, because of the nature of the hallucinogenic that you're trying, are actually um, connecting you with something else. Mm -hmm. I am agnostic about that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm only telling you that it seems that the brain activity is much more complex when you're under certain um, drugs. Um, so if... Yeah, so let, let me just ask about, like, so what about the other direction, like uh, anesthetics, for example, right? 
Yeah. Uh, is it also as you would expect that the patterns get simpler or like more compressible? Yeah, it's exactly like that. Mm -hmm. So there is a very nice, uh, I would say, relation between the level of consciousness and the compressibility mm -hmm. or the amount of complexity, if we put it in complexity terms. So yeah. the more simple your brain activity is, the less complex it is. And this happens between states as well. So when you're in deep sleep, meaning when you're sleeping but not dreaming, brain activity tends to be very repetitive. And this is also observable in the brain waves that the brain generates when you're asleep. They're very, 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 very high amplitude and very, very, very slow, but they're very repetitive. They repeat like one to two cycles per second, one to two hertz. And that is, if you try to compress that, you're going to see that the compression is really high. Mm -hmm. But the, mom the, the moment that you become uh, alert or awake again, and you start having your normal functions running, com uh, complexity starts increasing. Mm -hmm. yeah, I have one. And apparently, sorry, oh. just to finish the idea, apparently what people want to claim, but I'm not sure if that holds, that still holds, <laughs> is that if this psychedelic state is a specific state that is above normal alertness or normal wakefulness, the immediate um, prediction is that complexity should be higher in those states than when you're normally awake. We don't know that yet. And even if that would be the case, that doesn't tell you necessarily that psychedelics are a superior state of consciousness. It sells really well. It sold. Re it was. <laughs> if you if you read these papers, uh, it, the press made a lot of uh, buzz out of it. Like, oh, hallucin uh, um, psychedelics are a, a superior state of consciousness. Good luck with that. But at least it's telling you that if there are more stuff going on in your brain, and these experiences are more disorganized or they are richer, of course you're gonna have more complexity but whether or not does that mean that you're in a superior state of consciousness that's a different discussion and i have i have not a, i i don't have a specific opinion about that <laughs> that can be recorded <laughs> okay so i guess that's so uh, like my question here is now if we're looking at like well, compressibility or you could say like um how many correlations can you find right like the more correlations you can find the more compressible it is right yeah. so um but that doesn't really tell you anything really about the the quality of the pattern let's say Absolutely. right so the, the the question the first question i would i have here is like what do you know about the just like the the, the frequency like the speed of the activity right because you can have super high speed but it can still be super compressible And, and vice versa, right? So, so, yes. um, so do these um, um, psychedelics-induced states tend to have faster processing as well? Or what, what do you know about that? Yeah, uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's what people are doing as we speak. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the kind of questions that people are trying to resolve as we speak mm -hmm. so we we really don't know i can speculate a bit if you want but mm -hmm. um so we do know that that when you're actively engaging in a task 
the frequency at which your brain works is higher. Mm. And we call that gamma gamma activity. That is really fast. It's between 30 to 200, 250 hertz. Mm. And it's the rhythm by which neurons fire that you can see from outside, that you can see from an electrode either in the surface of your skull or even an electrode inside the brain. You see these effects that are very, very high in frequency. And we know that those frequencies are related to Cognition, attention, perception, hearing, touching, seeing, etc. Mm-hmm. Now, whether or not that frequency is going to double its speed when you are under the effects of a drug, mm-hmm. like a psychedelic drug, I don't know. And I think we don't know. And mm-hmm. whether or not that, that high frequency activity is going to be repetitive or just random, we also don't know. Mm-hmm. What the compression is telling us is that if you see higher compression, what what that, what that implies is that the activity has to be in some way repetitive. But we don't know whether it's a fast repetition mm-hmm. or a slow mm-hmm. repetition. We don't know. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at the structure of the brain, how the brain works, what we do know is that the faster the brain um, cycles per second, the less repetitive the activity tends to be. Mm-hmm. So when you have very, very fast rhythms, the rhythms are not fixed in a specific frequency. So I haven't seen any effect so far that tells me that by you see something specifically at 82 to 90 hertz. Because that would be a very, very, very repetitive, fast signal. Mm-hmm. We tend to believe that in the past, but that has been already shown that is not the case. Mm-hmm. When you have fast rhythms, we call we still call them rhythms, but they have they, they are not rhythms. They're very broad band effects. Mm-hmm. You have fast effects, but they are in a very, very wide range of frequencies that can go from thirty to three hundred hertz. But it's a huge blob that you see in the brain activity. It's not a specific band in the high f- in the high frequency range. That's exactly the opposite as what happens with the lower frequencies. We have clear 10 hertz effects that are related to other functions, much more clear 4 to 6 hertz effects that are related to other brain functions. But when we speak about rhythms that are fast, I wouldn't call them rhythms. They're just broadband effects. So what I would expect is that even if you speed up the process when you're under uh, some hallucinogenic drugs, you wouldn't have like a specific band in which those processes are happening. You probably would increase increase the blob, the range of high frequencies where these things are going on. But that's yeah, yeah, yeah. my opinion. Yeah, like for for me as a as a musician uh, uh, and engineer, it kind of like uh, makes sense, you know. Good, but like um, maybe this is this is not a not a fair question now. But as a neuroscientist, um, the what you're looking at most of the time, I guess, is the electric uh, uh, information, right? Yeah. So that that means that like um, all the other potential systems of communication that are in the brain are sort of like um, obviously not being looked at at the same time. Yes. You just so like even if it's not not your your main field of work, but what what do people do 
in that regard with like like um, measurements of neurotransmitters and stuff like that does does stuff like that exist in neurosciences it 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 does exist mm -hmm. um i i have to defend the electrical activity no, no you don't you don't have to defend <laughs> <laughs> i do uh because you you could you could do a fMRI of course so you can you can have scanners mm -hmm. and there is a of course Scanners are amazing because they can tell you exactly where things are happening. They cannot tell you really well, really well when things are happening. So they're not very good with timing. Mm -hmm. They're kind of slow. Even though they're getting better, you can have, let's say, in one second, two samples mm -hmm. of what's going on in the brain. Mm -hmm. With an EEG, you can have a thousand samples per second. Mm -hmm. So for studying the dynamics of Uh, any process, the best way we have, the best tool we have are based on electrophysiology. Yeah. But of course, there there might be slow processes that are underlying this uh, electrical activity that we have no idea that they're there. Um, but to be honest with you, I wouldn't, I'm not saying that they're not relevant. I'm just saying that at the end of the day, what you want is like a summary measure of millions of neurons working at the same time, because we know that the brain works in concert. So it's very valuable to have single neuron recordings of synaptic activity or calcium imaging or the amount of uh, blood of oxygenation that you have to certain region, etc. But if, if and only if you're measuring groups of neurons instead of just individual ones, Because even though that can be insightful, insightful for understanding the mechanisms by which single neurons work, I'm not sure if that's the right level of analysis for cognition. Because in order to, again, to become aware of something or to perceive, you need concerts. You need big gigs in the brain. And those big gigs in the brain cannot be captured with, uh, with local, with local uh, recordings, but with, with bigger recordings like the ones that you do with EEG or even with intracortical recordings that, that you're measuring whole uh, batches of neurons. But of course, you can you can play with a fMRI, you can play with uh, uh, another tool that allows you to record not only the neural activity, but also all the other cells that are in the brain that are five times more than neurons, like we call them glia, which are other types of cells that are not neurons, that serve a lot of different functions. And they also work as neurons sometimes, so they can also transfer information in an electrical sense. But they are there for like supporting the neurons uh, structurally, feeding the neurons, uh, creating the conditions by which neurons can propagate their electrical activity fast. Uh, and we have no idea what are they doing. We, we just found out I would say 15 years ago that they they are also form networks mm -hmm. that are as rich as the neural networks mm -hmm. these astrocytes that are one type of glia they they create massive networks they can also move um charges so they can also transfer electrical information uh but we cannot record them before because we're fixated with the neurons mm -hmm. for a, for very good reasons right yeah. but what, all I'm saying is that there is a whole wow parallel universe, like three more parallel universe in the brain that are unrelated to neurons with other cells that we have no clue 
how they're influencing the overall cognitive ability yeah. or anything. You know, like really. it's, it's, this was not the reason why I asked the question, but like thinking about it, just the way that people uh, use language to describe uh, psychological states, let's say, right? So where somebody with depression, you would say like, some people would say chemical imbalance in the brain or, you know, yes. so using, using the term yeah. of imbalance, right? So, and since um, when you're researching consciousness, right? Like I'm just thinking out loud here. Like, again, I don't know what I'm talking about. Go ahead. But, Go but ahead. The, um, so bas basically saying. what you're looking for is sort of that tipping point somehow, right? Like where the balance changes, like in the electric, electrical activity or, and like this is, this is just, if you say you have like a bucket full of water, of salt water, and you, you're, you're, you're putting one drop of unsalty water in it, right? So, like, the question is, like, the, the, the uh, I, I don't, like, the, the, the way that the solution changes, let's say. Exactly. Right? So, so yeah. if, if, and I know that that's super difficult to do, even, like, like how would you do that? Like, like the invasive aspect of, of measuring something like that is, like, but you know what I mean? Like, so I'm kind of, like, thinking that, Maybe, maybe, um, you know, there are so many other layers of, of information kind of like present where uh, the problem may be that we are not looking at that layer where that change. It's, it's actually, yeah, the most relevant one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I agree uh, with that criticism. Um, the best metaphor that we can use that I really like is like, okay, let's say that you are trying to identify a person inside a, a stadium, like, okay, mm -hmm. so Stickman is playing. <laughs> and then you have a lot of weirdos <laughs> looking at the band. <laughs> and then you're outside the, the venue and then you want to identify someone in the audience. And the only tool you have is one microphone. Mm -hmm. right. So you throw the microphone inside the venue and then the microphone basically falls somewhere. Mm -hmm. And you're going to hear people shouting or singing or but you're going to have you're going to have basically the buzz of all the background noise that everyone is making including the band and etc. Mm -hmm. And then the question is how can I identify this specific person out of this mess? Well, the metaphor that I just made is what neuroscience does at the moment with EEG and all these uh, devices. We have no clue. Mm -hmm. We can't. We can identify certain groups of voices, if you want, by doing very sophisticated source reconstruction, uh, PCA, ICA, etc. things. But at the end of the day, it's really, really hard to tell which one is which. We just ha have the, 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 the chorus or the, the, like the, the groups of people singing kind of approach. And then you can say, yeah, but what? how do you know that this is the right level? How do you know that uh, the, the, the person that is causing the problem inside the venue is, is not the group of, it's just a, one guy that is annoying everyone else. How can you mm -hmm. actually uh, identify this person? Well, we, we are not there yet. Mm -hmm. yeah. now, now, having said that, um, I do believe that the next step that the field is kind of moving slowly and not very successfully 
sorry, <laughs> is uh, trying to co combine the different levels. Mm -hmm. So let's say that you have in one individual or in one animal at least two or three levels that where you're capturing the activity. Mm -hmm. The level of the single neuron, the level of little groups, and the level of massive groups of neurons. We, we can do that. Mm -hmm. We can do that at the same time. The question is, what are the principles that relate one level to the next one? Mm -hmm. We have uh, no idea. Yeah. yeah. Like we have certain uh, models and I'm not, I'm not saying it in a, in a nasty way. I'm just saying that it's very difficult because in order to understand how A and B are related to each other, first you need to know what A and B are for real. And then to find some kind of bridge between the two. So it's really hard. And I think mm -hmm. that's something that mm -hmm. I'm very looking forward to seeing in the future, like how these different, um, and, and again, it can be a failed project, a failed program, because it might be the case that you become very good at describing what these two levels are doing, but then you gain, you, you don't gain you any new stuff. insight mm -hmm. about any problem, mm -hmm. right? So. Uh, but that's a good thing because at least we, we, we will know that it's not the, the right approach. I have the impression that there is something big there that it should happen in this century, which is the crosstalk between levels and how these levels generate more information than the sum of the parts. Mm -hmm. And how, how is that non-additive effect related to, to diseases or to normal brain function? So yeah, it's, it's, I don't want to sound. Uh, no, no, it's just it's just a field where just even even trying to come up with some sort of experimental design that would would allow the uh, manipulation of the parameters. Like it's, it's, it's yes, and there's so many yeah. they they become like too many. Yeah. yeah. So um, it's work work in progress. <laughs> I think I think we're like four to five Nobel prizes. Uh, in between now and, for instance, finding out what's if there is a single neural mechanisms mechanism of consciousness, what what that mechanism is, I measure things in terms of Nobel prizes. So I think we are <laughs> five Nobel prizes away, five Nobel prizes specifically devoted to this topic, not just five more years, mm -hmm. five Nobel prizes devoted to neuroscience away from knowing what happens with consciousness. Wow! So that's a very long time span that I'm giving to you. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But it's fun, at least to be part of all of this process in a small way. You know, it's, it's, it's fascinating because like when you're talking about the data that you're capturing and like the analysis you can run and just, just, just the fact that we do have um, FFT, you know, for example, to find patterns, <laughs> exactly. right? Like yeah. Uh, yeah. that is already such a, such an exciting thing. So then if you imagine like you have, you have, computers that are you know ever more powerful and faster and and um, I, you know that's why I, I'm totally with you and I, I'm I'm with you that what you do starting the electrical activity is is kind of like the way to go because that is that is what's manageable and that is also what holds some sort of future in it because we know that the analytical tools will get better and faster right yes so yeah um, and as a complement of that uh, remark, mm -hmm. <laughs> I would say that uh, we also need a good theory mm -hmm. because uh, 
the level of sophistication that we have at the moment for analyzing brain data is huge. Mm-hmm. Now we have all the AI machine learning stuff that is like uh, intruding uh, our field and everyone is doing it now because because they can do it. But we need we need very good theory or hypothesis or conceptual frameworks that can guide our questions in a meaningful way. And I think that's critical. That's something that our field, because it's, it's in its teenage years, doesn't really have so far. Mm-hmm. There are attempts for unifying, or even not for unifying, but for describing theoretically different processes that are critical for cognition. But there is no such... We still need a, a, a James Clark Mark Maxwell in our field that can find different things and unify electricity with magnetism. And in our case, it's going to be like unifying like 10 fields. It's going to be like a, a, a Maxwell on, on steroids again. <laughs> uh, we, we don't have those people yet. We have we have attempts of that. <laughs> I'm going to be crucified. But we, we I th- that's what I think. So we're not there yet. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, we need very good theory as well. Yeah, that's, that's in parallel with the technolo- technological advances and with the sophistication in the way how we scan brains and all of that, we need we need good theory. Yeah. So for me, it's been fascinating in recent years to um, to consume more uh, science, let's say, right, and and to to realize that in in uh, institutionalized um, science, at least, I don't know anything. Well, any. Anyway, there seems to be there seems to be this like uh, a, a certain cutoff point where like certain thoughts are not being made somehow because they're I don't know they're not allowed because as you say maybe you you you're kind of like sabotaging your career um, and 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 I find this fascinating because like even even in the conversation with Anil Seth that you had like, which I really enjoy very much it was great and he's great cool but there was like I would I couldn't get away from having this feeling that there was like a certain argument, let's say that, that he just wouldn't accept. And I mean that, and I mean that like uh, in a way, almost like a blind spot. Right. So um, what, what was that blind spot specifically? If, if, well, I, I, or it was just more like a general feeling. Yeah, it was, it was a general feeling, right? Like, like um, to sort of like maybe, um, like I think, like all the thinking he does, like like is is correct, but he doesn't take the next like the 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 next step, right? Mm-hmm. So where he applies it to itself somehow, as if he doesn't want to do the recursion on top of the recursion somehow. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. how I would describe it, and I don't, I don't, you know, I, I, yeah, of course, and I don't, course. you know, um, want to, uh, you know. No, no, no. I think he gets these comments all the time, by the way. Oh. Um, and But I, I agree with you that... Uh, so Anil is, a, is, a, is an excellent example of a very good thing for the field because he, he has been popularizing consciousness in a very nice way. Yeah. And he's such a nice guy, so he can do it very, very easily. Um, but I think there is like a... There is like a... Not that cool side of uh, popularizing things... Uh, in the sense that you become now a public figure in some way, so you 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 become like a meme, like a living meme. Mm-hmm. 
So people can can st- you become an influencer in a nice way, right? So everything that you say, everything that you tweet, everything that you mention can be, you know, distorted. Um, so I think I understand why he sticks to his guns in the sense of uh, stick stick to the science, to the evidence. He also is is very good at theorizing. He's one of the person people that I really admire mm-hmm. because of that. Mm-hmm. So he's very good at maybe not maybe not taking the next step, a massive next step, but at least trying to uh, to to synthesize all the data that we have around. Mm-hmm. You might like or you might not like what he's what he was his theory, mm-hmm. but at least he's trying to. Um, now, the next step, if I interpret what you're saying correctly, in your case, would be, okay, we have all of this knowledge. I'm going to stop pretending that doesn't apply to me. <laughs> and I'm just <laughs> I'm just going to try to do some introspection with all the knowledge we have, and I'm going to tell you what I think. Okay, that approach... Uh, I would say ended up really badly in the last century. You're a psychologist, so you know about introspectionism. Mm-hmm. Um, neuro- phenomenology, neurophenomenology, the Francisco Varela approach is not that, but it's also very complicated to do. So I think what I'm trying to say is that extracting general principles of how cognitive processes work based on very specific experimental designs under very specific conditions and making inferences out of that, general inferences out of that, it's already to me a big a big leap of faith. Mm. Because generalizing about things that are very specific, even if they're even if I can reproduce them, even if I can uh, uh, have 10,000 iterations of the same thing, and end up with the same result, they're still based on very specific experimental tasks, like people sitting in front of a screen, looking at certain stimuli that are isolated from everything else, controlled conditions at very at certain times during the day. It's very, very, very restricted in the sense that, it, but, but this is how science works. You need to have controlled conditions, otherwise you wouldn't have re, uh, replicability at all. So... Getting a result out of an experiment like this and then trying to infer general uh, principles out of that is already a big it's already a big uh, task. Now, the next step that you're suggesting is that using those using those general principles that are just extrapolations of single data points to apply them to yourself, I think it's, re- it's really really complicated you could do it it. i mean it is but i think that's what that's what uh philosophy is right or does okay and that's that's and then anil anil would say i'm not a philosopher. yeah exactly 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 and i i see that i see his point there as well but uh you know just just the the very fact that we're on one hand saying that we sort of like fill in the gaps like like an example that anil would give right but then at the same time, we talk about the brain as if it's something that is there independently of our experiencing. Yes, floating in the air. Yes. And, and that, that, is, that, is, yeah. that is kind of absurd to me. Right? So, but I also understand that people don't want to go there because if you go there, 
you already know that you're not going to find an answer. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so, but maybe finding the answer is not what, what the real objective is. Maybe the real objective would be to actually, to, to, to really ask the question, right? And, and, yeah. and that's how it's been for me. That's why it's easy for me to say that. Like in my, in my, you know, life of, of minor enlightenment, let's say, which I don't, wouldn't even call like that, but micro enlightenment, <laughs> but, but, you know, like th- that's, that's sort of like where I, I find, you know, discussing these things with you, I find the open, find the openness in you to, uh, where you, where you do, uh, kind of like put your research into that, into the context of humanity where, where humans you know, like do want to believe in whatever, right? So that's, that's yes. it's a human thing, yeah. right? And it I think it's important in, in also in sciences to somehow be aware that that's the, the, the context in which we're operating and, and that it's not just yes. a black box of mathematics or data analysis. Or, you know. I agree. Um. I mean, tell us, tell us about your experience with, yeah. with, with meditation and, you know. If- yes, I, I, I was about to, to mention that because, um, yeah, it's true that uh, I, I am kind of dissatisfied. Then you would say, why are you dissatisfied if you have a successful-ish career and blah, blah, blah. Well, I'm not dissatisfied with science. I'm not dissatisfied with what I do. I'm very happy with what I do. But, but. I think that uh, there is a whole neglected area, not neglected, but kind of ignored area that people, uh, I I would say, unpleasantly (laughs) call it uh, spirituality Mm -hmm. Uh, because you immediately have a, a, like you said, I hear the word and my brain immediately start making associations about what the word means and then you start thinking about spirits and things that are no but generally speaking you know what i mean which is which are experiences that are only described by the observer of those experiences and epistemologically speaking they're equally valid as an explanation based on neuroscience Mm -hmm. to me Mm -hmm. to me some people might say yeah but you know if someone is hallucinating, uh, you wouldn't call them. Uh, I mean, how do you know that the things that you are experiencing in meditation, for instance, are experiences that are generalizable, or they can be uh, studied scientifically, or they can actually help us understanding consciousness? Well, those questions to me are completely irrelevant because I think. Why would you need to explain experiences in the first time? I'm going to play advocate's devil here. Mm -hmm. What's the value of explaining what happens to you? And what does it mean to explain something? Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Does it mean to reduce your experience to something more fundamental, like like a physical substrate or like a brain or like a whatever, what we've been discussing for the last hour? And would you be happy with that as a sentient being to know that, like the Pink Floyd song say, everything you feel, everything you hear, everything you touch, is just a matter of, uh, uh, you know, spiking uh, activity in your brain. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. But uh, what about the experience itself? What about the quality of that experience? Um, 
And on that note, I've been meditating, I would say, since lockdown 1.0 started. I always wanted to do it, but I didn't have the time. And I said, yeah, next, next. And then I had so much time available that I just started doing so. And I, I, I then later on learned properly uh, with a teacher of transcendental meditation. Um, and it was, it was very interesting because I... <laughs> I finally realized that I don't I don't know how to say this but I I finally realized that there is a place that you can reach that is it feels that is completely independent of your normal thinking that is like the base of the thinking that is like the ground. I don't know how to, well, people call it the ground of being. I don't know how, how, how I can call it, but it's somewhere there that I'm not even, I'm not even sure if the word somewhere is appropriate because it implies a physical place. I'm, I'm not saying that, but there is an experience that feels like a ground, mm -hmm. like a ground of all other things. Mm -hmm. Possibly the ground that lent existence to all other things. Mm -hmm. And you kind of start having like a grasp of what that is by doing this procedure that I discovered that is possibly the most scientific thing that I ever done because you can repeat it every day and it's quantifiable because you can describe what happens. It's also um, very reliable and robust in the sense that the kind of experiences that you have are, are the same every day in your own, you know, practice. So then I started reading a whole bunch of stuff about what the hell is this? I started asking questions to people. I interviewed people on the channel about this. I have, I have had a lot of discussions with my teacher. Uh, I'm going to interview uh, a very famous Swami for the channel in the next month. So I, it, it started, it ignited a whole new parallel universe in my brain. <laughs> Uh, and and it has been like a like a tipping point, I would say, in my in my life. It sounds extremely uh, grandiloquent, uh, but it's true that you don't have those many moments in your life. That moments that you say, "Okay, there is a click here." I had one when I saw an interview of Francisco Varela on TV, and I said, "I want to do this. I want to study neuroscience my whole life. I want to." And I remember the moment, like watching the TV in the interview when I was thirteen. I remember that. I had another one when I finished the PhD and I said, ah, I want to do this with my life in terms of my research. And I had this other one that I said, oh, wait a second. Wait a second. Maybe and just maybe there is a realm of things that are not things <laughs> that are running in parallel here. And they're, they don't need to be metaphysical, but... Yeah, but it's interesting. And and again, how you can reconcile that with what I do, the answer to me is let's be gentle. So just, just suspend your judgment and see what happens. Um, keep the practice going. Now I'm in touch with the David Lynch Foundation, so they're going to fund a study for, for, for running brain analysis on meditators of TM just to see 
whether we can get a better insight in what this thing is. Um, uh, have, so have there been, has to, there been any research into that already? There, there, there are. Yeah, there has. Fred Travis, uh, he's uh, he's the one. He's the scientist that has been studying TM for the last thirty years. Mm-hmm. There are very nice studies showing that when you are in that state of mind, uh, the whole brain starts uh, oscillating at ten hertz. Mm-hmm. So um, it's this called alpha band, which is a very, very narrow mm-hmm. frequency band. And maybe mainly the whole brain starts like jumping at 10 hertz. This oscillation has been related to different uh, cognitive functions like, like creativity or like problem solving, et cetera, et cetera. So there, there are research on that. But I want to bring all the 21st century tools that I've been using for the last 10 years to dig deeper into mm-hmm into the state, mm-hmm. to do it with people that have been meditating for more than 15 years, to have the reports, to relay the reports with the neural data on a millisecond by millisecond way, to record other physiological features that are related to the state of trance, like your respiration. So we know, for instance, that when you're in that deep, deep state, you almost stop breathing. Mm-hmm. So you look like you're not breathing. Actually, your your respiration pattern starts becoming almost flat. So there is a relationship between the apnea and the brain activity that is also interesting to capture. That has been described for 3,000 years. This is not new. Mm-hmm. This is from the Vedic tradition. This is in the Upanishads. This is this is this is there. This has been there for ages. Um, and I guess for a very good reason because it's so universal that everyone can can reach that. If you practice in the right way, I would say. Yeah. So again, maybe there is a connection between the two things. Maybe there is not, but I'm not I'm not uh, I'm, concerned about yeah. it. Yeah, I'm I'm just a, a little uh, curious now if you're if you had to come up with uh, a hypothesis like or theories for the uh, how should I say this? Like, say that the depth of that um, state of the of the brain, right? Would you do? Do you think that you can already tell what it's going to be without doing the research? I know that this is not a question that, like I, I should ask a researcher, but it's a very good question, actually, and I I would I would. <laughs> I, I want to try. So I, I would say that it's going to look very similar to what sleep looks like, mm-hmm. but at the same time, completely different than sleep. Mm-hmm. I, I have, I'm, no, I'm making no sense at the moment. But So do you think it's going to be th- more compressible or less compressible? I think it's going to be extremely, uh, extremely compressible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Almost like if you were dead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um but at the same time, you have the paradoxical effect, which I think to me is the is the thing that triggers the entire you have a very paradoxical effect that you are completely flat in the axis of content. So the stuff in your mind stop existing. Not during the process, but when you reach these very, very peculiar moments that they call pure awareness when there is a cessation 
in the content in your mind, but the wakefulness is full, mm-hmm. which is paradoxical. Mm-hmm. Because usually when you're fully alert, you're also fully aware in the sense of contents, the stuff that you have in your mind, right? It's really hard to think, I think there is no example, where you're fully alert, but you're alert of nothing. When you're fully awake and uh, a mammoth is uh, chasing you within a dream, <laughs> you remember every single detail in your dream. Your dream is full of content, right? Mm-hmm. When you're escaping from some, uh, I don't know, uh, infected uh, person on the street in our, in our days, you're fully aware of your surroundings, right? You don't want to be run over by a car. You're completely alert and you're completely aware of everything that's happening around you. But in this state... The content is almost zero and the alertness is almost a hundred, which is very paradoxical for the theories of consciousness that we have currently, mm-hmm. that alertness and awareness go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. So what's going to happen? My, my idea is that you're going to have compression that is very close to a dead person, but the report is going to be fully alert. So I have no idea where in the brain do I need to look for the alertness that is unrelated to the awareness of things so it's very part and i'm very curious about what's going to happen with all of these metrics and we discussed this with fred travis a couple of weeks ago and with the ceo of the david lynch foundation it was really cool Mm -hmm. they're very excited because um nobody has applied these tools to this kind of meditation which so i'm I'm very excited yeah so could be like like you were saying like you have no idea right now where where it could be located or you know and 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 that yes. would be a major major breakthrough having sort of like a an idea um yeah i mean location is probably also like not the right way to think about yeah. it right? <laughs> but uh, that the, pro- the the process the process the, yes the signature we call the it si- the signature. signature that's a good that's a good word yeah, yeah it's um it's it's been a thing so I, I I totally recommend to practice any type of these things because uh, it gives you like a complete different uh, angle from something that you know that is there. Mm-hmm. Like your awareness, you know that is there. But do you have any method, first person method to become aware of that light to the spotlight? Um, hey, would you would you say that that state has um, anything to do with the experience of being alive? Because you said that it feels like, you know, it's almost like a dead person. So, yeah, um, I'm going to make a, a, a sorry for the hippiness of this part. But I think, <laughs> I truly think, sorry, I, I got excited and I plucked myself from the, let me plug myself again. Okay, there we go. Um, yeah, I think that's. The quality by which you are alive is I. Okay, let me let me be more clear. I think that when you reach that state, that is the ground for your existence. It's not just if we think of consciousness as the quality that makes you aware of everything, then consciousness is the quality by which you are a sentient being, by which you exist. So what if you're tapping, I don't want to use the word essence because I'm, uh, then people would think that I'm talking about a thing. But if you tap 
the endless bubbling source of that uh, inner force that we call awareness? What if you're closer and closer to that to that source that is ever changing, is permanent, is it never dies, etc.? What if you're just having a little little grasp of what that is? I think that 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 how does it feel? It feels like okay, this is there is not there is nothing beyond this. That's 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 exactly that's I think that's very accurate. You 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 touch something and you say that's it. This is it. This is it. There is nothing else. There is nothing underlying this because science is always about finding the underlying source of that, the correlates of this, the causes of this. We have this there is an inner layer that we want to reach to. If you get there, there's nothing else. That's the impression I have. And it's not a cognitive impression. No, it's not, it's not a thought. It's something that you feel when you're there. Yeah. It's like a hug. Mm-hmm. It's like being hugged by someone you love and you know that you're safe. You know that if you die in that specific moment in time, and if a meteor crashes the earth in that specific moment, it doesn't matter because you're there. You're there. It's it's a really nice, um, very trans- transcendental experience, if you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why some uh, some yogis believe that meditation and this type of meditation is a is a genuine practice of the process of dying. Mm-hmm. Because when you die, as you mentioned, every cease to exist. Every your cognition gets fragmented, thought starts disappearing, and then suddenly you are in the same place that I apparently tap twenty minutes twice a day for the last two years. Mm-hmm. Yes. With the difference is that you just don't come back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <yeah. laughs> Yeah, that was my hippie. Moment. That was your hippie moment. No, no, I, you know, like I, I can. I mean, this may may sound strange, but I can just create that state in myself just in an instant. Mm-hmm. I just, mm-hmm. I don't do it often, um, but I, I can just go there if I, if I want to. Yeah, and um, so uh, I, you know, I, I felt like we could have stopped a few times already. So like. Now, now, now it's like the really, the really, the last um, question or like idea I want to put out there. So, with the idea of consciousness as you know, like experience, uh, what happens it is that, from my perspective, it becomes something that is kind of like again, it's like this, 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 uh, like the sense of self and like like these things that we haven't even talked about at, at all today. Yeah. Um, which I think could be could be also like a misleading starting point for thinking about or for understanding consciousness. So maybe consciousness is not something that we need to see as being inside of us, but something that is out, is outside of us, something that we're inside of, <laughs> right? So that's that's sort of like uh, if you if you if you think about um, you could think about like these these balls in space which have consciousness inside them, right? But you could also think of space as having consciousness inside it, and you get yes. these densities, just like what you're describing about, 
like the area that is responsible for the face, right? That would yes. be that would be like a place in that space of consciousness. And and to me, that that idea makes just just for like for a simple human that I'm makes much more sense because it also explains how these consciousnesses, right? Yeah. Like uh, have the same agreements. Like yes. why we have language, why we can say this is a glass of water or whatever, right? Yes. It's it, it yeah. because we we move through the same uh, field of consciousness where 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 agreements are made because we are all connected, or every not we are all connected, but everything is connected, and what is yeah. like uh, we or I or whatever is just sort of like some a little bit more density here. Just, just yes. like the also the idea with the salt water bucket, with you know, like it's kind of like yes, exactly, yeah. I think you you're right. I mean, um, the two metaphors that have pervaded humanity so far are about consciousness. I would say there are two. One is there are three, but I'm I'm gonna just mention two for the sake of of your very nice uh, thought, and it's. <laughs> There is stuff, particles, and Big Bang, and then a lot of particles were created, and then particles found a way of organizing itself in a way that created life, and then life evolved from inferior animals to superior, allegedly, animals like us, and then suddenly, in the process of all of that, consciousness popped out. Mm -hmm. And we scientists are baffled about that, and we want to understand how is it possible that a piece of meat can... <laughs> in the in the endless i mean in the in the time span of evolution created sentience or qual qualitative states mm -hmm. that's one worldview the second worldview is no consciousness is all there is mm -hmm. there are not two things there is just one and that oneness is consciousness mm -hmm. and from this vast field of consciousness is that there are more as you mentioned little uh, you know spirals of high density that we call ourselves or animals or mm -hmm. flowers or anything else. And that view has the cause inverted, right? So you have material stuff and by the mere act of complexity, you end up with conscious beings. But in this other view is the other way around. You have consciousness as the basis and individuality and differences as a consequence of that unified thing that we call consciousness. It's a complete opposite view. The thing is, how you can make science out of the, using the second worldview? I'm, I'm not saying that it's impossible. I'm not saying that it's, uh, it's not compatible. But it's much, it's much harder because all the science, science is created based on the idea of um, that complexity is incremental right and complexity is just a result of simpler things coming together and organizing in more sophisticated ways so under in that having that paradigm in mind it's completely obvious to say yeah sure consciousness is just the result of more complicated structural organization of living things but for the whole indian tradition eastern traditions that's that's that doesn't make any sense it's the other way it's the other way around um so i'm not close to the possibility that that's the case it's just a matter of uh 
how can I reconcile that with what I do? Yeah, I, I, I think even though like um, it seems it seems that the, the second approach is something that's really hard to kind of like turn into a science. But however, and I know that you are doing this or planning to do this, is you rather than just look at one brain, you look at many brains in a room, let's say, or in, uh, you know, and you, you, you kind of like see if you can find any effects of synchronization, for lack of a better term, maybe, um, that are not, that are sort of like pointing at something like a connective tissue, like a connective forest that uh, brings consciousness, right? I, th I think it's not impossible to, uh, to to start looking in that in that direction, and it's not. Yeah. So. Yeah, it it is not, and the the question would be, how could you convince a uh, a reviewer mm -hmm. uh, that the interpretation that you make out of that is what you are actually thinking of? So. My approach to this would be to run the experiment, see what happens, see whether, let's say, if there is a clear prediction about what meditation is. If we're all if we're all tapping the same underlying field, then you would be able to see, let's say, that uh, different brains in one room when they're doing this and they are agreeing in what they're experiencing, create more information out of each individual brain. So there is some commonality, some structure across brains but a different thing is to claim that 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 effect that i observe across brains is the correlate of or the demonstration of a conscious field that's a there yeah, are like is, 10 steps yeah, between yeah, the two sure. things of course but of course you can have the, the the prediction that that might be the case and if you have the hypothesis that that's the case well you can make an argument right um so I would say it's a starting point, um, but it would be extremely hard to uh, convince uh, any of my colleagues that that's the case, even to convince myself, even though I could believe that. But, but you know, like we've, we've talked about music in, in, in the other conversation we had, right? And, and the, the aspect of listening as in, as in perceiving, right? Mm -hmm. Um, not necessarily just via music, but also just two people sitting next to each other. There is some sort of like, even if we don't open our mouth, there is some certain, there is perception. And on that level, you don't, we don't need to have to call it uh, um, consciousness really. But if we, if we kind of like uh, have some more understanding uh, that there is, so this like non-verbal or whatever communication or not not even directed to each other communication that kind of like happens if you share the same space somehow. Yes. I think that, uh, and I'm not talking about like crazy ESP experiments no, 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 or no. anything. No, 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 you no. Know? no I agree. Like, like you can have, like say you have your experimental design with say some visual priming thing again and you, yeah. you, you, you just try to see, okay, because like in social social psychology, we know or people know that the setting has a huge influence on the results. We know that as, you know, like, so, but, but kind of like what kind of different effects would you get if you, if you, if you, uh, if you measure 
two brains sitting next to each other at the same time doing the same task. Yeah. For example, yeah. I think I think yes. there there may be um, some really interesting uh, potential there for understanding. Yes. Yeah, and and there are people doing this, like uh, Guillaume Dumas, a colleague in uh, mm -hmm. in Canada. Mm -hmm. He was, I would say, the pioneer in doing um, brain to brain uh, analysis to understand how different brains can influence each other based on different contexts or just by the mere fact of interacting. I think that's 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 great. And um, theoretically speaking, there is this whole uh, idea that the context. It's influencing the parts, so the the global patterns can actually have an effect on the elements that generate that pattern. That philosophers call that submergence, which is the opposite of emergence, mm -hmm. like an emerging property. Mm -hmm. So when you have patterns that are more than the sum of the parts, the the idea of a submergent uh, state is that the wholeness, which is more than the sum of the part, is capable of exerting causal influences on the elements that are generating the pattern. Mm -hmm. So again, it's like a circular causality. And we know that in physics, for instance, there are plenty of examples where submergence actually exists, or we can, you can make a good case for it. And why would it be the case for uh, groups of people, right? Like in a concert, like this, it, mm -hmm. the, the atmosphere of the, of the gig is clearly influencing, which is more than the sum of the part, it's clearly influencing each of the individuals in such a way that they end up like having a good time or getting into the same mood, communicating things that are nonverbal, like you say. Mm -hmm. So that's, 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 that, that I would say that's, that's, uh, that's another great area of research that the 21st century is waiting for. Fantastic. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, thank you for what you do and your research. And I, I uh, wish you, wish you a very long life with, uh, <laughs> Lots, lots of wonderful uh, findings. <laughs> yes, yes. And, thank you. and uh, yeah, yeah. Thanks for so. Thank session. you for having me. Um, and uh, yeah, let's uh, plan in the future. We, we, we. For those who don't know, we are planning a very uh, interesting thing with Marcus, mm -hmm. with his brain <laughs> and a colleague's brain. So possibly in the future, if we. If we chat in a year or so, we can we can actually show people how your brain is speaking to other brains. Wow! Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Andres. I'll okay, I'll stop recording. Cool.